0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode from a Lancashire lass with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour, BBC Radio Manchester and also now BBC Radio Lancashire. Joining me today is Ben Briggs, who is the editor of the Farmer's Guardian and has been since March 2016. Uh, Ben was born into a farming family and is also the current chairman of the British Guild of Agricultural Journalists. We're going to be talking about all things farming, including the Farm24 campaign and what that means. So Ben, uh, thank you for coming on today. How are you?
1: I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah.
0: as I said in your like intro you were born on into a farm um, what was what was your childhood like growing up on a farm what was that like
1: it was fantastic really we grew up on a, a small it was originally a small dairy farm about 30 acres it's the kind of farm really um that uh, in the 80s and, and early 90s was kind of coming to an end really it was uh, it, you know there were loads of little farms like that, uh, and we grew up down in the Ribble Valley in Ribchester. Uh, it was uh, it was dairy and pigs, and uh, and then over time it would it would move to beef and sheep. But it was a fantastic upbringing. It, we always describe it. Uh, mean uh, uh, some of my friends who are from farming backgrounds, we we describe it as rural feral, <laughs> because you've kind of got this thing where you you're born in the countryside. There aren't really any any boundaries because you've got this. you've know, you got this farm and this landscape to play in, you you grew up in a little village, everybody knows you and you just kind of get on with it so it was a fantastic upbringing Um, but my parents also ran a a big milk round in Blackburn um, in excess of a thousand customers, 200 odd gallon a day and that was a big part of our childhood as well so we had this kind of, I always say we had this duality really, we had this, we grew up in a beautiful area um, but we we delivered milk. Uh, it's it's called Shadsworth in Blackburn. It's it's you know uh, quite a deprived area. So you had that you had that mixture of the two. So you you had the the milk production, the rural, but then you had this urban environment and and a really an understanding of the pressures that are on people and and what food means to them and, and that kind of side of things. So so it was it was fantastic. But it it was this eye opening thing. And I always say when I do farming uh, talks and things like that, I always say there's that phrase what the butler saw I always think it's what the milk boy saw really it's that little you always had that little snapshot into people's lives and I think uh, really there was always a curiosity in me um, for people and for stories and, and that would ultimately lead me on to my, my kind of journalism career.
0: And did you always know you wanted to do something within agriculture from when you were like on the milk round and things like that?
1: No not at all I, want, I wanted to do Probably anything, but in a way, when I was like a when I was a teenager, I, my parents worked, um, and my mum still does. They worked so hard, work, um, just the most ridiculous hours going, and and I'd always kind of wanted to do something where, um, that wasn't such a slog, really. Um, those little farms, whilst idyllic and whilst nice. Were you know a real slog for those kind of people. They were a labour of love. If I went back two generations to my uh, my granddad on my dad's side, um, so um, you know my dad's dad, they they came out of they came out of Blackburn. They were mill workers. They've been in. Uh, my granddad was in the Merchant Navy in the Second World War, uh, and I think for them, like the 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 rural and um, farming was a bit of a release. And my dad had that. My dad loved the auction more. He just he, he lived for it. Really. Um, but I, I didn't really quite share that. I was into the other things. So uh, I actually got started in agriculture. I went to university, did a journalism and English literature degree, um, came out of there with, uh, with a 2-1. And I just I got lucky actually. I got a, an opportunity to start at Farmer's Guardian back in the start of 2004 as a data inputter, so inputting the auction mark data. Uh, into the back of the newspaper at the time Uh, and that was my start so I did a couple of years at FG really enjoyed it wanted other skills went and worked for Lancashire Telegraph uh, edited a business magazine and then about five years later came back to to Farmers Guardian and I think what what I learned in that early part of my career is that actually within me even though I didn't know it there was a passion for for farming and for agriculture um, and there was an empathy as well with that audience and and, and going even though I, I, I was lucky to start at Farmers Guardian uh, and I, it was the right decision to leave and to gain more skills and, and to become a fully qualified journalist but that kind of um, as I say that passion for rural affairs that passion for the countryside was very much in me and I saw I could build a career around it as well so that's why I came back to it and uh, and and you know as you say, five years after going back, I became editor and I'm now editor and group editor at, at Agri Briefing. So it's been, a, yeah, it's been a fantastic career thus far, really, uh, but not one I would have ever predicted at the age of 18.
0: No, I'm a bit like that at this stage now, in the sense that I do my master's and my major projects on agriculture, but it's sort of broadcast journalism, not print. So it's figuring out the ways I could include that in like farming as well. Um And obviously, since you were a little boy, obviously, agriculture has changed and is still changing the way it happens in terms of like the technology and things. Would you say that that's one of the main things that's changed since, you know, a few decades ago? Or do you think there's a different part?
1: Yeah, I yeah personally I, I believe that machinery um, is probably one of the big drivers of, of change uh, I know we talk about the the subsidy regime that's undergoing changes but I think the ability to do more with less has been one of the really big um, the really big changes in agriculture over the past generation if you think about the size and the scale of machinery now you know I grew up when I was growing up I mean I'm 39 now so if I went back 25 years I we <laughs> on those little farms we had a what we, have? we had a Leyland 252 tractor uh, my uncle had a, a Ford uh, 7610 and they're all those kind of very much 1980s mm. um, classics now really but the size and the scale of it now you know in Rochester, in in the in the road that I grew up in when we were growing up there was probably 10 farms you know there's there's two now now there's still the same amount of land farm there's probably more cattle in some respects but it's just bigger units um you know the the footprint of the farms themselves in terms of the buildings has totally changed so the ability for for one person or one family to to farm a larger area has, has just increased hugely and i think where agriculture is going as well is is really exciting if you look at automation now um, you know, the use of drone technology is, uh, is just romping on. Lots of farmers are using that. You know, we're looking at driverless tractors and driverless machines, and that's going to be the next iteration of agriculture, and that's going to change the, the role of the farmer. And I, I, I think that's one of the things that really, really fascinates me, if I'm totally honest, is that a generation ago, it was about working hard, it was about, you know, physical labour, now, I think quite often on these farms, it's about working smart. It's about mm. how do we harness technology to, to allow us to do things. Um, and that's why you're seeing, you know, uh, I think the gender balance is, is entirely different now than it was in my, my parents' era. Even though women were, you know, women have always been integral to farms. And, you know, on, on my mum and dad, I would always look and I would, I would never look at one over the other. I would never think my dad worked harder than my mum or anything like that. I just think that there's probably more opportunities now, really, and uh, it's, I think that's good for the industry as well.
0: Yeah, and as lo- as well, like through this episode, we're going to look at some sort of issues in farming so that listeners can just understand them a bit more if they're not from farming backgrounds. So what, um, obviously Brexit happened, what's the current deal with Australia and other deals looking like for farmers?
1: yeah brexit did happen uh, a lot of farmers uh, voted for brexit and obviously one of the the big challenges is going to be now that we're outside the common agricultural policy so farmers are not going to get paid for how much land they farm uh, it will pivot now in england the the developing the environmental land management scheme which will be about which is all about public money for public goods and and public goods is is defined as what the market can't provide so it'll be about environmental issues like tree planting soil health all those kind of different things which is fundamentally going to change the the nature of how farming is supported at the same time in the background you've got these free trade deals going on with the likes of Australia which we've done and there is a real um, concern that um, basically over the next 10 years we will move to a real free trade agreement with Australia so um, quotas will Uh, will reduce in time, they're going to be able to send, um, you know, their agricultural products here, tariff free, and that's something we're looking to replicate around the world. So I think a lot of farmers are really worried that um, commodity products will come in from abroad, which is cheaper, um, because it is produced really to lower standards in, in, you know, bigger systems, and that it will undercut the British market for, for British products. I'm a bit more realistic, if I'm totally honest. I think the, uh, the story that British agriculture has to tell around its food and around the, the uh, produce that, that agriculture in this country provides is a really positive one. Uh, it is about um, farming that, that helps the landscape, that helps the environment, that is very much, uh, you know, we have the highest welfare systems of anywhere in the world. So I think we, we have a great story to tell. I guess the worry is that if those cheaper products do get a foothold uh, in this country, then consumers might be, might be pulled towards them. I think you've also got to look as well. There's a lot in the food service sector, uh, in the public sector that uses imported products. Um, and if those kind of companies can see that there's an opportunity to to reduce costs, then, then that's got to be a real concern for, for British farming as well. We do also have a cheap food culture. We spend the least amount of money as a percentage of people's monthly salaries uh, on food than we ever have done. So people are used to paying not a lot for for the food. So uh, it is on a knife edge. The unions have ramped up the rhetoric about it because they don't want those trade deals. Uh, But I think that the proof, uh, pardon the pun, will be in the pudding over the next decade
0: yeah because like you were saying with the welfare standards i know that some countries and i'm not sure which so i couldn't say but it's they use more antibiotics or use different chemicals and like you said we have like such a good standard in the in the uk Um, is that concerning for if those foods do end up on the supermarket shelves do you think or do you think it'll make more people back british farmers instead
1: i would hope it it makes more people by British farmers, because as you say, um, you know, you've got growth hormones uh, in beef over in the, the US, um, you know, Australia, you've got some of the animal welfare standards around the, the sheep flocks is a bit, uh, it's not something that we would be happy with over here with the way that they treat their animals, you know, some of their exports uh, into Malaysia of what they would call Mickey bulls, uh, sending them live into Malaysia to then be slaughtered you know, we can't get away with that over here and nor would we want to. So I would hope that uh, as those stories start to emerge and and we hopefully have proper labelling of those products, um, that that drives people towards British food and British farming and and really helps them appreciate the the story that we have to tell. I mean, obviously, it sometimes becomes a bit of a symbolic uh, and and kind of um, highly contentious debate. So you're talking about growth hormones those would probably not, that product would not be allowed into the UK anyway, but it is used by the unions and other ones to kind of highlight the fact of, of the practices that go on in the places like the US um, and it's um, it, it becomes a highly emotive issue for British farmers uh, and I would hope that, that as we say longer term that British consumers back um, what we're producing in this country.
0: And I've noticed that that's happened quite a lot more during the pandemic in terms of people have been going to their local farm shops more and getting their produce locally because they've realised that like farmers kept going throughout the pandemic, kept working. Um, How has the pandemic affected farmers then?
1: The the pandemic, weirdly, has been good for British agriculture. (laughs) There has been a reappraisal of of, uh, British farming and British farm standards I think particularly in the first lockdown where it was uh, you know where we really were locked down people were looking for other things to be interested in you know there was people you couldn't eat out you couldn't eat you know quite often you couldn't even get takeaways or anything like that so people were looking at the food they produce and, and it, I think it became a, a treat for them as well you know the pubs were shut uh, restaurants were shut so they were focusing on more of about what they were eating so there was this discovery, as, as you were saying, of, of farm shops, of local provenance of local food producers. You know, if you talk to butchers, um, they would say that it was like Christmas every day uh, for mm. a period because uh, my, I mean, my brother works in the meat wholesale business. And he said, like at times they've not been able to keep up. Um and, and, and because as well world demand has shifted. So, If you look at what's going on in China at the moment with their pig herd, so they've got a massive African swine fever outbreak that has decimated the pig herd. So a lot of protein source, be it lamb, be it other things from New Zealand, which would usually come to this country, is being redirected to there, which means that um, British retailers and, and British wholesalers are having to seek out British products. So if you look at the price of lamb this spring, it's been the highest in living memory. It has been absolutely phenomenal. The price of beef at the moment is, is absolutely terrific. I was talking to somebody in the, the red meat business yesterday saying that demand is outstripping supply. So for farmers, actually, in this kind of counter-cyclical manner, which um, farming often occupies, it's been a really positive period. And I think I think farming at the moment feels quite buoyed by that. But but the intriguing thing is going to be how long it lasts and, and how long that bounce. Uh, keeps going on for because as subsidies start to reduce as well we need those prices to be at the levels that they are
0: yeah and i guess for most farmers sort of the job is isolating anyway um i know i spoke to a few young farmers about the mental health in farming in the pandemic and that especially for the younger generations it's been particularly more isolating just with the like no young farmers meetings and the dues and stuff haven't been happening do you think that um like mental health within the industry is is um, sort of a bigger issue now, or it's being talked about more, or what? What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think if you if you look at the front of uh, Farmers Guardian this week, um, the July 30th edition, the front page is YFC numbers half, uh, which is all about the fact that the young farmers' clubs in the pandemic have lost half their membership, uh, which is a really um, it's quite a stark figure, but if you're, if you're not able to meet, then you're not going to pay your subs, are you? So, and you're not going to get together. And, and, and I'm sure that YFC will recover post-pandemic. But as you rightly say, there's been this heightened um, notion of, uh, of isolation and of distance. And I think, like, for me, you know, as I say, I'm late 30s. I've got a couple of young kids. I'm married. I'm, you know, my life now is determined by my, you know, where my kids are or what they <laughs> want to do or whatever. But when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I mean, you know, I loved playing football. I loved going to the pub probably two or three nights a week. You know, um, like you say, young farmers, all these kind of different social elements. That's the kind of age group I feel most sorry for, actually. And I think on that mental health in agriculture, I think it's because of things like that, that the younger generation is happier to talk um, about um, problems with mental health and isolation. And I think that's actually... for the large part, it's a really positive thing. Uh, I think the older age group in farming um, is still reticent about talking about it. Mm. Uh, I once remember being at a wedding and this guy came up to me, somebody introduced him as uh, to me and this person said, oh, this is Ben, editor of Farmer's Guardian. And this guy had a right do at me saying, oh, if you put any more articles in FG, I'm not going to buy it and all this kind of stuff. And it's because I think in rural areas in general for a long long time we've not been particularly fair about talking about mental health issues or about health in general because it's seen as a sign of weakness and I think we have to break that stigma um you know it's um I sadly lost my dad a couple of years ago to um because of farmer's lung um so you know a respiratory problem <laughs> and uh, and it was awful, but the reality was if he'd have spoken out earlier about his health issues, then he'd probably still be here today. But he had that kind of very kind of Lancashire farmer mentality of, oh, I'll just get on with it, I'm just getting older, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same with mental health that we do too often. And I think, sadly, in agriculture, we do, we do see the ramifications of that in terms of people taking their own lives or or you know, or, or the breakdowns that we see in family Farming units because people aren't being open enough about the the physical and, and mental health problems. And I think um, I think it's really encouraging to see that that people are more open about it. But I think the flip side is as well is that agriculture is a tough job. And um, life is tough at times, and, and we need that we need that personal resilience. But that's been really difficult when you've had all those networks taken away from you. Uh, yeah. I don't think I don't think there's anybody um, you know over the past eighteen months who won't have had a couple of down days or a couple of days where they felt they're struggling a bit now if you're somebody who can pick up the phone to a friend or even just go and have a coffee with them that's great but as we all know that farmers aren't always like that
0: no and like some of their best days have been when when they can go to the auction and like chat to people but then when that wasn't happening in the pandemic and things like that that would have been um, it's like a social aspect as well isn't it things like that things like the agricultural shows they're interesting but they're also some of the like top social events for these farmers of all ages Um you touched on earlier about the the policies that the government are changing now we're out of the eu so it's going the single farm payments a- ending and the elm schemes coming into place um which is kind of an attempt to make farming more sustainable you know there's the net zero by 2040 thing. Do you think, what what is the your thoughts on the European, not European, Environment and Land Management Scheme and how, what's the farmer's thoughts on the difference?
1: It depends which farmers you talk to really. Um, some of them are really, really concerned about the end of um, the basic payment scheme. So the money from the Common Agricultural Policy in Europe, um, some of them think that they aren't Going to be able to carry on. Uh, your tenant farmers, in particular, uh, are a bit concerned about it because it's still unclear about whether they're going to be able to claim the, the money or whether it's going to be the landlord. And um, yet, there are a, a host of other farmers who who are seeing it in a positive light So they're seeing it as a good opportunity to to tap into um, that topic of biodiversity to improve the health of the farms uh, and to to kind of really grasp that. I'm kind of. I'm probably I'm probably on the fence I'm a realist there's going to be some farmers who are propped up by by subsidy payments there's absolutely no doubt about that um I was out in um New Zealand in at the end of 2015 you said at the outset that I'm currently chairman of the British Guild of Agricultural Journalists but I haven't been for a couple of years actually so it makes me think I'll have to uh, Update my uh, my biography somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, when when I was, I was really fortunate to go on an um, an International Federation of Ag Journalists Congress in New Zealand, and it it was just incredible. Um, pre having children, and um, mm-hmm. but the thing you real about realize about New Zealand is not just the fact that they haven't had subsidies since the mid nineteen eighties. It's what's that what that has done to their mindset in terms of their approach to farming. It's a business approach to farming. It has to be. It's a commercial uh, approach. They have to think about succession and how they hand the farm, it, the farm on because once they're physically unable to farm, nobody there's not going to be a, a, a support check rolling in. Yeah. They have to be proactive and, and treated as a business. And I think that ultimately that's maybe where British farming will go, but it will take a generation. These things will not happen uh, overnight by any stretch of the imagination. And I think one of the really interesting things for me is that the government and Michael Gove, in particular, when he was DEFRA secretary, really believed that um, the quote unquote bad farmers would disappear as if there is kind of it's, it's, you know, it's so easy to quantify. But we know, and I've got them in my own family who uh, will be owner occupiers or tenants on peppercorn rents. They have no lifestyle expectation, really. Um, you know, I have a couple of feral uncles who I love to bits, but their idea of a treat at the end of the week is to buy a multi-pack of Walker's crisps. And I, I kid you not. I mean, that is the is that they're not bothered about going on holiday or fancy meals or whatever. And, they, and they're really happy people and, and wonderful people, but they can survive really on, on very little. Uh, and I think this belief that you take away subsidy, those people then exit the industry, those tenancies come up for um for rent it's not going to be as simple as that it's going to take time to to work out and to uh to to get new people in and i, I think one of the things that the government wants to do not only via the environmental schemes but there's this exit scheme for farmers who want to retire where you can draw down a, a lump sum of cash which is a really really nice idea but i think in practice um the uptake of that will be will be limited, and um, we I think we have to be more innovative as an industry in how we get the next generation into farming. I think it's not just going to be as easy as thinking there's a tenancy there they can have that. I think we've got to be looking at share farming and maybe contract farming, and, and you know maybe some farm management roles or time mentoring schemes where we're tying uh, youngsters up to uh, not tying them up, uh, linking them up with older farmers who who want to retire. So. Uh, I think there's a lot of worth in what the government's doing but I also think there's there's quite a bit of naivety as to the realities of human nature and and farmers in particular.
0: Yeah I was going to say about the exit payment scheme because it's something I've been looking into um so it's like over 65 year old farmers could get given this lump sum like you said to retire um and it's kind of like out of the old in with the new it's it's sort of suggesting that all over 65 year old farmers all of a sudden just aren't proactive don't want to don't want to shape their farm in any way and you know are too old to learn the new tricks and everything and just pass it on to the younger ones which is difficult because I don't think you can put one size fits all for them and there's many many farmers over that age that are very proactive and then there's some like you said who could, could still be in their 80s doing it and they've got family there as well. So it's like, would do you pay them but their family takes over? I, I don't quite understand the the logistics and I've not found one farmer yet that would say, who's over that age, who would say to me, yes, I'd take it. So I'm not sure how popular that would be.
1: No, and I think that's it. I think some of you really kind of switched on farmers who have treated farming more as a career. So they're getting into late 50s, early 60s, thinking, oh, I want to retire um, you know, they might take uh, advantage of it. But, it, it, for, you know, it, for example, if you were on a, say you're on a small eight, 80 acre farm, um, a tenanted farm uh, it, it, near an urban area and you've got a beautiful barn and an old farmhouse and all this lot, Well, the, the landlord might actually think I can just um, sublet the fields to the bigger farmers around it and I'll develop the barn, I'll develop the farmhouse, I'll develop the buildings. So therefore, you're not going to get a new tenant in. So somebody has probably taken a nice paycheck, but that farm has not necessarily gone back into to facilitating a younger person to get into the industry. So I think there always needs to be a dose of reality um, with a lot of this. And and as you say, um, there's a bit of scepticism and we'll just we'll just see how it goes over the next couple of years once it finally comes in.
0: Yeah. Um, what other issues do you think are in the industry currently that maybe people don't know about or people should know about?
1: I think some of the issues affecting farming at the moment that uh, I think Jeremy Clarkson said it on Clarkson's farm didn't he, about the weather. Uh, when he said, oh, if you think that farmers are just whinging about the weather for the sake of it, you know, they're not. It, it has a huge, huge impact. I think the way that weather patterns are changing is actually having quite a big impact now on on a lot of farming. Uh, it's making people change the decisions about maybe what farming systems are running, maybe what crops are putting in the ground, uh, and j- just the general overall approach. So I think that to, to the outside um, to the public to the consumer there might be this stereotypical image of the as being grumpy and always talking about the weather i mean it, it, it is a huge concern and i think the way that the weather patterns are changing is uh, is quite noticeable i think other issues are we've seen it this year with the staycation boom um you know a lot of farmers are making really good money uh, from the diversifications if they've got holiday cottages if they've got pop-up campsites but I think you're also starting to see the real pressure that is now coming on rural areas in terms of public access, in terms of incidents of livestock worrying, in terms of a, a kind of inherent respect for the countryside. Um, mm. Most people do have it. Most people respect the countryside. They treat it well. But there is a small minority. You've seen it in the tourist hotspots where roads are clogged up with, uh, with cars, you know, gates are being uh, parked in front of. And I think there's a bit of that kind of tension uh, come into the fore about that and um, and and just and I think some of the other things in the background that that maybe the public isn't aware of and and it goes back into that change in policy landscape and uh, a, a kind of concerns and pressures around farm assurance and uh, and other issues like that really about how do we kind of show as an industry that we're ticking those welfare boxes that we're ticking the environmental boxes and I think a lot of farmers feel that Contrary to the belief that Brexit was going to lead to a bonfire of regulation and red tape, there's actually more coming our way and I think that's quite a big concern for a lot of farmers as well.
0: Um, And what about rural crime? I know that there's been a lot of, and we might have to explain what these are, but I know there's been like a lot of GPS things stolen and and because the technology and the machinery is getting bigger and more expensive... There is a rise in the rural crime. Do you know sort of why that is, or sort of have you noticed there's a lot more rural crime from like what you're reporting on?
1: Yeah, I think the figures from NFU Mutual would, would suggest that um, the the cost of rural crime is increasing on a on a yearly basis. But like you say, that could because um, could be because there's the the value of the kit is worth more. I mean, tractors now are you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, you've got a GPS system on there. Um, so you can, uh, you can do your, your plowing or your sowing or whatever you're doing. Um, you know, that's, that's worth a hell of a lot of money as well. So um, there is this concern. You are seeing the uh, the regular things being stolen off farm So quad bikes and ATVs are very, very uh, nickable for want of a better word. Uh, Land rovers, uh, four by fours often go missing and, um, um, certain kinds of tractors as well and quite often if they do find them they find them in shipping containers heading for uh, it might be eastern europe or africa or, or places like that so um, there is a real concern amongst farmers but at the end of the day i think we've had this we have this image uh, in rural areas that were kind of maybe exempt from it that farming is this is kind of bucolic lifestyle and that, that you know our, our farm is somewhere that that should be respected, but at the end of the day, if you've got expensive kit on your unit and you don't have the right security protocols in place, then you are going to be a target. And I think that what we are seeing is that a lot of it seems to be linked back to organised gangs, uh, organised crime, and there is this um, concern that that farms are being targeted. And uh, if you were a if you were a criminal, I, I guess you would do because you know you wouldn't leave your. I live on a little street in a village. Uh, but we're not far from the big towns, Preston, Blackburn. I'm not going to leave my Land Rover with the keys in overnight just because it's a nice area. Somebody could pass that and Mm -hmm. think, and through a moment of opportunism, take that vehicle. So you do everything you can to protect it. Um, I I think it's the same with farmers. We've always had this habit of maybe leaving keys in tractors, keys in quads, things like this. and, and, And that has maybe contributed to it. So, Farming is definitely having to up its game in terms of security and what it can do. But at times it does feel like a, a bit of a battle. I know uh, when we were kids, my dad had a, uh, a couple of Land Rovers stolen, a couple of Ivor Williams stock boxes nicked as well. So um, it's, it's, it's really frustrating and, and is a big issue. And, and it goes back to that issue as well that you were talking about before of um, rural isolation it can heighten that because actually in rural areas you don't always have the police resources as well so there is a concern it heightens that feeling that you're under attack or being watched and Mm. uh, and I think it's a it's a huge issue for some farmers yeah definitely
0: and you mentioned Jeremy Clarkson so I have to ask what did you think of Clarkson's farm and do you think it's helped agriculture like PR in a good way
1: I think it has I mean the thing with Clarkson is he is an absolutely brilliant journalist, and he's a brilliant presenter. And I think for farming, he's found the ultimate light for... I've been saying this, that if you looked at something like Amanda Rowan uh, and uh, is it Our Yorkshire Farm? I mean, that gets incredible viewing figures uh, and probably bigger than than Clarkson on Amazon Prime. But the thing with Clarkson and, and like, Caleby's little sidekick... <laughs> That's ideal for farmers, isn't it? Because they feel it is somebody talking their language and somebody who's got their back and he's showing agriculture warts and all. I mean, they've been doing it for 20 odd years with Top Gear uh, and the Grand Tour on on Amazon. He's just, I think he understands his audience. He's a brilliant presenter. He gets it. He knows what's going to, what's going to tick their boxes. But I think for agriculture, it's been a really good thing. I mean, um, I was playing uh, golf a couple of weeks ago and the, the lads I was playing golf with aren't from farming backgrounds um, but they were like going to me have you seen it have you met him it's amazing isn't it and I think that's like mm. it was just brilliant and I, I think anything like that that in a light hearted way can actually show the realities yeah. of the precious farmers face. I mean the, the striking thing for me about Clarkson's farm was when he was sat down with his consultant saying, how much money have I made this year? And it was something like a hundred quid, wasn't it? And he was like, you're kidding me, you know? But, and I think that it shows the reality of how hard and how variable agriculture can be. And I think through the, the humour and through the, um, the kind of um, um, jovial nature of that film, I think it will bring some home truths on to people. And let's face it, Clarkson will also make a lot of money out of his Diddly Squat Farm Shop as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's probably win-win for him as well.
0: I've seen so many people like queuing up at that diddly squat farm shop and like he's just around and it's the queues are like miles long just seeing seeing it. Um but I saw an episode because I've not watched it all yet, but it was like he wanted to say bye to the sheep before they got slaughtered and the mangoes they've already gone and he was like nearly in tears in his car so I think it shows like both aspects like farmers aren't just all like they're emotional with their animals as well um so obviously agricultural shows are back you're at the you're at the great yorkshire um and you're at garstang show how does it feel for like the farmer's guardian and how do you feel like all these agricultural shows are back open again
1: I think it's really good to be back yeah but I do wonder and I I did my leader on it the other week I do wonder what the future is for agricultural shows and I don't mean that in a negative sense as to say that they're not going to be there but I think as a um, in terms of the livestock exhibits which we tend to focus on at Farmers Guardian I do wonder what the commercial relevance of them is going to be going forward we live in a world where data um, can tell you you know the, the genomic qualities of your dairy cattle and um, you know even sheep or uh, uh, sheep and beef uh, there's more and more data around them and, and you can harness that so i i think it's it's great to be back um but I, but i do wonder um you know um what the strategy is going to be for those shows going forward and whether they're going to see themselves as more of a uh, an arena to bridge that urban rural divide you know much like Clarkson's Farmers done it should we be using agricultural shows to um to try and I don't want to say educate the public because that's a bit I think that's a bit demeaning but really showcase what agriculture is about and uh, uh, but it is great it is great to have them back you know I cut my teeth as a as a cub reporter on agricultural shows around the UK and I've been really lucky to to travel all over the UK covering them and uh, uh they, they are fantastic and as, as you were saying before there's that social element it allows people mm-hmm. to get out it allows people to meet up with friends uh, and it's just more the sign that society is getting back to normal as well and to be able to have a pint and or a drink or whatever and just um, just enjoy them is uh, is wonderful
0: so will the farmer's guardian be at garstang show as well
1: yeah we'll be at garstang uh we'll be uh we will be belatedly at the Royal Banks. Um, We've been at the Great Yorkshire, and then we, we're going to try and cover some of the other the other big shows that are going on this year. In a normal year, we would be at about forty five shows throughout the summer, um, but it's just a bit of a disjointed year this year. I mean, we haven't had the Royal Welsh either, um, or the you know the Royal Highland was a was a virtual showcase. So uh, yeah, we'll have reporters at Garstang, uh, and we'll be uh, uh, we'll be there doing our bit. Yeah.
0: Um, and so finally, just talk to me about the Farm24 campaign. So it's something the Farmers Guardian does with Morrison's uh, yeah, every year. Um, just, yeah, tell me a bit about it, what listeners can expect and when it is.
1: So 24 Hours in Farming runs from 5am on August the 5th for, obviously, as the name suggests, a 24-hour period. And it's using the hashtag Farm24 on, on the various social media platforms um to really showcase what what farmers are doing throughout the day it started um a number of years ago before social media properly exploded really it was initially something that worked very well on twitter and and twitter still continues to be um uh, the biggest platform for it but it was about it 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 was aiming to be a showcase um for agriculture and as i say, trying to um trying to show what farming's about to a wider audience and, and to the consumer audience. So, so really shining a light on the people who produce our food and the stories um, that they can bring to the table throughout that day. So it might be something as prosaic as you might be out harvesting wheat. You might be milking some cows. You might be having a day off farm. We just want to know what you're doing on that day and use the hashtag farm 24 um, and, over the past few years the reach of it and it has been in excess of a hundred million users on social media which is just wow.
0: uh,
1: just just incredible and Morrisons have been a really positive partner because for Morrisons it's all about local provenance. it's all about you know they've got vertically integrated supply chains via woodheads and um, so they've been a great partner for, for that and the British Farming Awards and uh, yeah and we just want to make it bigger and, and, and better than ever really it's there's so many different social media platforms now. Social media, is it keeps evolving and changing, but you've got, um, obviously, you've got the established ones like Twitter and, uh, and Facebook, but increasingly, like last year, we had more and more traction on Instagram. You've got TikTok. You've got, you know, there's all these different platforms that people can get involved in, uh, and it's just encouraging farmers and also the public as well um, to show their appreciation for the agricultural community. Use that hashtag Farm24 uh, and let's just make it a great celebration of agriculture. I'm surprised, if I'm totally honest, at how big it's become. It's become the kind of focal point in the yearly calendar for agriculture. Um, and it's just, a, it's just a really positive day. And I don't think we... as like I was saying before, sometimes as an industry, we, we can be a bit stereotyped. We can be perceived as being a bit grumpy and a bit whatever. But actually we've got fantastic people in the industry, we've got fantastic stories to, de- to tell and, uh, and Farm 24 has done that over the last several years.
0: And even Boris Johnson had a picture with like the Farm 24 sign last year, didn't he not? I'm sure I remember seeing that.
1: Yeah, I always wonder whether that's a bit bittersweet to have Boris Johnson or whoever is Prime Minister at the time but yeah, um, number 10 down street and the devolved administrations always want to get involved because I think they see the the size and the scale of that that social media event, but also they are very very keen to be in farmers as well. So it's uh, it's great and uh, it, it's great just to just to have people uh, involved. Yeah, yeah.
0: Just remind me again, the day is. Oh. So
1: it's Thursday, August the fifth. Uh, it starts at five a.m. and it runs for twenty four hours through till Friday, August the sixth. Uh, at 5am so we've got um, uh, the team at Farmers Guardian and Morrison's will be manning the social media desk throughout the day uh, and just bringing as many stories as we can to to people and, and showing what uh, showing what farming is about it's trended at number one and number two in the past several years so we, we want it in there as well uh, hopefully sometimes it, it seems to coincide with like GCSE results day or A-level results day so <laughs> Or even the transfer deadline day one one year knocked us off uh, our perch, but um, uh, I'm hoping we're, we're not going to clash like that this year.
0: Oh, well, Ben, thank you very much. I really enjoyed the chatting to you today.
1: No problem at all. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at From a Lass.